This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid Test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, my goal is to bring you ideas, insight and inspiration to take your communication skills and activities to the next level. In this episode, which has been almost a year in the making, we will be honing our influencing and negotiation skills. I've long been fascinated by what the world's leading hostage negotiators can teach us about persuasion, listening and instigating behaviour change. So almost a year ago, I reached out to probably the world's leading authority on the subject, Chris Voss. Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. In all, he spent 24 years with the Bureau, persuading terrorists, bank robbers and kidnappers to change their behaviour. Following his retirement from the FBI, Chris founded the Black Swan Group, a consulting firm that trains the business world on how to negotiate more effectively. Chris also lectures at some of the most prestigious universities in the world. And then there's his book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. It's full of real-life stories and actionable insight that, 
quite honestly changed my entire perspective on negotiation. Okay, so hopefully you and I never have to persuade anyone to put a gun down. But our work does involve persuasion and influence. And let's be honest, the occasional tricky conversation to get our budget signed off or our project over the line. In this episode, Chris explains how to make others feel heard and understood using what he calls tactical empathy. And that includes forging a bond with the trickiest of people who, on the face of it, don't even want to engage us in conversation in the first place. You'll hear how to gather information without asking a single question. How to spot fake opportunities and get even the most reserved analytical people talking. So, without further ado, I give you the very persuasive, the very fascinating Chris Voss. So, Chris, I wouldn't mind, if it's okay with you, starting quite near the beginning, if I may, because I believe you were born in a town called Mount Pleasant in Iowa. Well, Is that I, right? That's where I grew up. My parents moved there when I was about two years old. I was originally born in the Chicago area, but I have no memory of that because I was so little when, when they moved. Because I don't know America that well, you can probably tell by my accent, but the uh, the the wonders of Google Maps, I took a little wander around <laughs> Mount Pleasant this morning. Did you really? <laughs> it's quite a small town. I just wanted to get a feel for the place. <laughs> did, ev- did everybody wave? Everybody in Mount Pleasant likes to wave. <laughs> I heard you say on one of your TEDx talks that the building that you were working in when you started working for the FBI had more people working in it than the town that you grew up in. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> true. Yeah. Small town. What drew you to law enforcement in the first instance? Did you always grow up knowing that you wanted to be a cop or was there was there something else you wanted no, to be? No, you know, the crazy thing, I saw this movie when I was 16 years old called The Super Cops. True story of two police officers in New York City that were wildly innovative, creative guys, uh, worked in um, a very tough part of town, threw a lot of bad guys in jail, and the community loved them. They went after drug dealers. And even in high crime communities, the majority of the community is still law-abiding citizens. And they appreciate good law enforcement. And these guys were loved by the community. They were creative. They had a lot of fun and they did a lot of good. And I was just really attracted to that. It's quite a big leap, though, from being on the beat, as it were, as we would say in the UK. I don't know if you say the same thing. But then hostage negotiation. You were the lead international kidnapping negotiator, the Bureau. I think in all you spent 24 years with the Bureau. And these are high stakes negotiations. How did that transition happen? You know, like like everything else, I mean, uh, a little at a time, things fall out of left field. I mean, you know, one of the philosophies that we're very much into in my company today is just get a little bit better each day. You know, just just, just don't try to make big leaps, just tiny little bit better each day. And then a year goes by and you've covered a massive amount of ground. So, you know, when I was in law enforcement, just, just little bitty, you know, let me try this, let me pursue this. And the cumulative effect things accumulate really quickly and and yeah i mean i just 
ended up in New York. I was on SWAT. I decided to go to negotiation. You know, I showed up. I had a lot of initiative. The, the first major uh, Chase Manhattan bank robbery with hostages. I wasn't called to it. My partner and I went. So, you know, we just just focus on getting a little bit at a time and keep pursuing it. And, you know, a few years later, I'm in charge of every kidnapping of every American citizen anywhere in the world. <laughs> that's amazing. So I read somewhere that's over 150 different negotiations of that kind. That sounds incredible. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> the, well, it's a seller's market, so to speak. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot going on. Now, the first line of your company website, Black Swan, says, everything you think you know about negotiation is wrong. (laughs) What's the biggest misconception, would you say, that people tend to have about successful negotiation? That it has to be combative. I I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, it's by definition, it has to be a great collaboration. I mean, if you're negotiating with somebody, two people are faced with different aspects of the same problem. And to tackle that problem, they got to collaborate. But so many of our famous negotiators, quote, famous negotiators, are combative. Like the American president right now bills himself as, as a great negotiator. He's very combative. In, in my opinion, the best negotiator in the world is probably Oprah. And you don't think of Oprah as combative. But when you look at the spectacular negotiations that she's pulled off, and I've had I know of two conversations that have been relayed to me privately of her saying to highly volatile celebrities, it's my way or the highway. Not in those words, but that was the message. And the highly volatile celebrity said, okay, we'll do it your way. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So I've heard you say that it's not necessarily a win-win that you're looking for in this instance. That's not necessarily what it is. But if you're not combative and if you don't seek to necessarily win in that outright assertive way, people will want to come back. They'll want to do business with you again. And there seems to be a real golden thread of integrity that runs through your work. Would you, would, is, is that a good way of putting yeah, it? Yeah, I, 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 lo- I love the way you put that. Um, in- integrity is critical. And, you know, for long-term success, I mean, you, you've, got to, you've got to leave people wanting to deal with you again, you know, because otherwise, you know, there's one or two companies out there that are very visible for putting their suppliers out of business. That's the exception. Uh, you know, one in a million. Walmart puts its suppliers out of business on a regular basis. If you do business with Walmart, you're lucky if you're making money. They're, they're going to kill you on a price. But no, nobody, you know, don't try to operate like that. You know, quietly, there are more Oprahs than there are Donald Trumps. Yes, you know, absolutely. Warren Buffett, you know, he's he's got to be a brilliant negotiator. You don't you don't hear about him bragging about how he beat anybody into submission. I mean, Warren Buffett saved the American economy in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. That's how influential that guy is. So yeah, I mean, uh, you have to have a golden thread of integrity. I love that. You don't have to beat your chest, as you say. You don't have to shout. You don't have to get overly insertive to get your point across and to get the right to get the right deal. No, well, well, um, you won't get many deals that way. Is the bottom line. You know mm. what? When we've seen 
consistently the people that we coach on a weekly basis, someone that we're coaching says this deal will change my life. And they'll probably end up saying that four or five times this year. Now, before the book came out, when I used to teach negotiation at, um, at Georgetown, Typically in Washington, D.C., I get introduced to somebody and they say, hey, it's Chris Voss. He teaches negotiation in the MBA program. And there would always be somebody, let me tell you about this deal that I did. I had them over a barrel. I want to tell you something. I cut this great deal. And as you talk to them, you find out the deal was five years ago. And they haven't had one like that since. You know, so the braggarts, the combative people their great deals are rare events and the people that we coach or the people that negotiate with integrity, their great deals are all the time, all the time. When you wrote your book, did you realize, I suppose all those years with the FBI, was it a surprise to you to realize that those tactics, that approach worked so well in the business world? Or did you have a hunch this is going to work everywhere, all over the world, in every situation. Now, what really surprised me was how bad negotiation is in the in the business world. That's what surprised me. Um, I'd been doing this long enough. You know, we'd been doing it on my team. We knew the stuff worked. By the time the book was published, you know, we'd been teaching business negotiation in two different MBA programs. Students were killing it right and left, just making spectacular things happen which is, and the book is full of stories of those students doing it in the real world. So we already knew it worked. What I didn't really appreciate was the depth of really bad negotiation that exists in a business world, which since nobody knows any better, everybody thinks it's good. And, and that's one of the great advantages. If you study negotiation at all, if you pick up any skills at all, you're going to be able to begin to make an impact in your life immediately. I mean, everyone has got to go out and read your book, buy your book, because it's it's also a fantastic read because there's so many real stories of your experiences in there. So it's just a it's a jolly good read. Thank you. Aside from all the wonderful things you're you're learning as you're reading it as well. I want to start with not what you say, but how you say it. Huh. And, and you have a phrase that really caught me. You said your inner voice betrays your outer voice. Before I read your book, I'd go into every negotiation, my heart would be beating, my palms would be sweating, and I'd be really anxious. And I was thinking to myself as I was reading that, you've lost before you start, Katie. <laughs> How do you change your mindset, though? How do you get into a more positive and confident frame of mind? You know, in point, it's, it's almost a reality reset. Uh, a couple of years ago, I'm prepping for a negotiation, and... Um, the person I'm getting ready to talk to, we'd been in business for a while and I was, I was just fed up with this person. We'd got into business with him uh, for strategic reasons, but we, we knew the person was deceptive. We knew there was a certain number of integrity issues, but we liked the strategic reasons anyway. So we're getting ready to renegotiate the deal and, and I'm just, I'm thinking about the lack of integrity on the other side, the deception, and it's, and I can't, I keep imagining myself becoming angry with this person, which in point of fact is, is a, a means of preparation. And my preparation is wrong. And I'm trying really hard and I just can't trigger the right words in my mind. And then I sat back and I thought, you know, the reason why this person is pursuing us so diligently is because we're so good at what we're doing. 
they're horrified at not doing business with them. So in point of fact, I'm actually lucky to be in this conversation. It's a result of success. This is a success problem. And as soon as I said to, you know, it's at a, as soon as I was grateful, my mindset switched immediately. I mentally came up with the things that I needed to say, and I could put it off to the side. You know, what's the rambling dissertation here? If you're in the first world, you've already won. You know, the, the developed world, I, you know, the verbiage changes every few years. You know, I'm 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 a I'm a I'm a 1980s guy. I'm still using terminology from before the internet. But you know, I woke up in the United States. If you woke up within 10 feet of running water, you're already one. I mean, the the mm. hundreds of millions of people that woke up this morning and had to take a walk just to go outside of wherever they woke up, just to go find running water. That that's the majority of the planet, the develop, developing world, Africa. You know, you pick it. If you didn't wake up there, you woke up with advantages that the majority of the world doesn't have. You know, I you know I love there was a there was an American football player, Osi Umanura, I think was his name. Grew up in Africa. He's playing for the New York Giants. His family. He's telling his family about what it's like to live in America, and he says, you know, in the in America. They have sidewalks that go up to your house. And his family in Africa was saying, like, really? <laughs> so <laughs> point of fact, what problems do you if you know if if nobody in your family's on their deathbed, if 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 you woke up within 10 feet of running water, if you didn't legitimately have to worry about getting killed today. And there are some people in, you know, in, in the United States, the neighborhood is so tough. They got to worry about whether or not they're going to make it from the front door to the sidewalk. But if, if you, those aren't actually your concerns, if you don't have a legitimate concern about whether or not you're going to make it to sunset, you probably live in a better life than the majority of the planet. So it's all really about perspective and getting the perspective right before you go yeah. in. And also... I'd love to talk to you a little bit about listening. Again, before we start talking about what we should be saying in a negotiation, because you write, the guy listening has the control, not oh, wow. the one talking. Yeah. Now, why is that? Why is the listening this superhuman power that we all have? We all think we're probably good listeners as well, actually. I bet we're not. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like any perishable skill without practice, conscious practice. Um, you, you know, you're not good at it. No great athlete in any sport only plays the games you know they all practice they all rehearse you know I, I used to talk about you know everybody in the world knew who tiger woods and still does basically but when he was on top of his game tiger woods had a coach he practiced he spent time on a driving range i mean the reason he became great was he practiced all the time so you know, people think just because they spend a lot of time not talking that that equates to listening. No, it doesn't. Without people pointing out to you the subtleties of what you're listening for. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we created the term tactical empathy. We'll tell you exactly what to listen for and how it causes neurochemical changes in the brain, which changes how the other person reacts to you because we have neuroscience. And I can tell you what happens. And it's hard science. You know, psychology was a soft science, but we 
that was before we could see into the brain or watch electrical activity and, and monitor neurochemicals, which change your mood. So if you don't know those things when you're not talking, then you don't know how you're listening. You just don't mm-hmm. if you haven't been exposed to the mm-hmm. information. And there isn't a single negotiation book in the world that doesn't list listening as an advanced skill, which kind of by definition means without some instruction and intentionality in it, if you haven't had that instruction, and you don't know the intentionality, you're not doing it well. Mm. Just coming back to tactical empathy, I think it's important to draw this distinction between empathy and sympathy. You actually say sympathy is a bit of a weakness. Do you want to just help us understand the difference there? When I vo- first started this journey by volunteering on a crisis hotline way back when, they said to us in helping us understand, they said, getting into the quicksand with someone does not help them get out. Sympathy is getting into the quicksand with them. If they're in quicksand, you climbing into the quicksand with them only makes two people drown. Kills two people. And that's what, that's what sympathy is. You know, sympathy, while altruistically, is a great idea. A sympathetic response is not listed anywhere as part of a solution-oriented approach. So it, it just doesn't help. I mean, it's nice. I'm happy that you sympathize for my situation. But you climbing in here with me ain't going to help me. As a matter of fact, I probably need your outside perspective, but I don't need you to hammer it with me. Because if I'm in a quicksand, there's something here I'm missing. Maybe it's just what my perspective has given me. So, yeah, there's a huge difference between sympathy and empathy. Daniel Goleman's, one one of the books that he wrote, Focus, I think in the chapter, The Empathy Triad, he talks about cognitive empathy, which is very close to tactical empathy. And it ain't got nothing to do with feeling what you feel. It is all about me getting a, a good, accurate picture of what you but I don't have to feel it to get an accurate picture of it. And Goldman points that out. And Daniel Goldman's a much smarter dude than me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is about really understanding someone's intention, what's driving their yeah. behavior, maybe their values even. Yeah, it's understanding what's driving their behavior. And then we've, we've got some cheat codes, if you will, in advance. In hostage negotiation, we were always taught, look for the loss. And then, so I thought, okay, so in crises, where someone is so driven over the edge, a loss is driving them. But maybe that's only in crises. And then in 2002, Daniel Kahneman wins the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics for saying that loss thinks twice as much as an equivalent game, prospect theory. Now, he didn't say in crises. This is all humans and all behavior, all humans and all behavior. Loss is the dominant driving force. And I remember thinking like, wow, I was given a set of tools to deal with, help people cope with loss a long time ago. I just didn't know it applied to everybody all the time. So that's one of the cheat codes. What's driving the person, whatever the decision making is. Now we have statistics, sales statistics, 70 people make a buy to avoid a loss. 70% of the behavior. We live in a loss, you know, I happen to live in Las Vegas, but I've always used the analogy. 
live in a Las Vegas world, play the percentages. Percentages are that your decisions, 70% chance are being made based on your perception of loss. Hostage negotiation skills are completely built for that. So the hostage negotiation skills were built for human behavior. We just thought it was crisis, but it turns out to be human behavior. So by understanding someone's loss and acknowledging that loss, you totally understand, I guess, what's driving them. And then you can have a conversation with them about that and the thing that matters most to them. Is that the idea? That's exactly it. I mean, it's and three things happen when you um, sort of acknowledge the loss or even call it out. They feel understood. So there's a bonding effect that it takes place. So now you're getting influenced because they're bonding with you. The bonding is not necessarily a two-way street. You know, there's a, in hostage negotiation, there was this, you know, this, this phenomenon of Stockholm syndrome where the hostages yes. bonded with their captors. Captors didn't necessarily bond with the hostages. <laughs> Good point. But the hostages yes. were bonding with the captors. You know, so some, somebody starts to bond with you. They also articulating the loss then deactivates the negativity around it. So then you're beginning to put them in a clearer headspace. And then once they're bonding with you, you're putting them in a clearer headspace. And now they're becoming all simultaneously more open to listening to you. So you, the acknowledgement of the loss sort of is, is a triple whammy, if you will. And all of these things play in your favor. None of them put you in a worse place, but you get triple the effect that you're in a better place. Coming on to actually then the words that we that we use, I was particularly fascinated to hear that actually we're not striving for that yes. In your book, you talk about the importance of no, because once you've reached no, you know where the bottom line is for someone. They won't go any further. That's a kind of the hard barrier, if you like, around the conversation. Um, am I reading that right? Is that is that why we should look for the no? Well, you know, first of all, the, the looking for the yes, getting people to say yes has become so manipulative mm-hmm. and su- such global manipulation, which is ongoing. I mean, anybody, if you Google momentum selling, and there's so many enthusiastic supporters of momentum selling, which is get them to say yes. Each yes is a micro-commitment or a tie-down. And then they have to say yes to the big thing. And people that are, that are trying to gain a foothold on influence go like, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I want micro-agreements to tie them down and give them no way out. And everybody's had that game run on them multiple times. They're yes battered. And so consequently, they are, there's an instinctive, in, immediate aversion as soon as somebody starts to get you to say yes. Like I'll, I'll, I'll speak to, you know, before COVID, I, you know, I might speak to groups anywhere from 200 to 1,400 people. And the answer is always the same. I say, how many of you, what's your gut reaction when a phone rings and a voice in the other line, into the line says, have you got a few minutes to talk? And people immediately go like, no, that's what they say. That's the gut reaction. Now, now, a few people say that, but that doesn't change. That's what the gut reaction is because they yes batter. And so just getting out of that to begin with. Now, so we start taking a look at no. First Jim Camp's book, Start With No, wasn't about getting people to say no. It was just about telling them it was okay to say no. Camp's approach used to be, look, before we get started, you can say no to me at any time. 
say no anytime, stopped us at any time. And people felt this relief. Camp called it giving them the right to veto, telling them right away, it's okay to say no. And so we started playing with it and we, we said, what happens when you actually get them to say no? So we went from, have you got a few minutes to talk to is now a bad time to talk. And instantaneous, 180 degree turn in reactions. Like, you know, you're trying to reach out for somebody. You don't know when to schedule a call. I did this the other day. I sent this person a text message. It's now a bad time to talk. The answer I got back with was, yes, but I could talk at four. Bang. You know, an instantaneous response. If, they, if the answer is no, you get them on the phone. They call you. You text them. You follow up with a phone call. Another guy. It's now a bad time to talk. No, go ahead. Let, call, me, call me right now. Bang. I got them on the phone. Either, and those are the only two outcomes. Either outcome is to your favor because you need someone's unfocused attention. So whether it's now or you give me the time, I just immediately accomplish my goal. So when people say no, they feel protected. Having felt protected, the old saying, people don't remember what you said, they remember how you made them feel. If people always feel protected, when they, when they talk with you, they're always going to want to talk to you. If they're always worried about how you're exploiting them, which is this yes orientation, puts fear and mistrust in the back of people's mind, they're always going to remember that. Which one do you want? Mm. Which also explains the magic behind the phrase that you say we want to get to, which is that's oh, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not your right, it's that right. And all of them, you then have a meeting of minds. I've been understood. You've got me. You've understood me. Yeah. I love yeah. that. And then, and then again, the, the neurochemical response, the bonding that takes place, because that's right is an indicator of an epiphany that you've just helped the other person see. That's right is what people say when they feel they've heard the truth. So to some degree... And there are different grades of that's right, you know, anywhere from one star to a five star. But they've experienced an epiphany. And if you look up neurochemicals of epiphany, among those that are triggered in a person who's experienced an epiphany is oxytocin. And oxytocin is the bonding drug. It's what mothers feel when they bond to their children. It's what people who are in love feel with one another. You trigger an oxytocin event in the other person, again, they're starting to Stockholm with you. They're bonding to you. You may not be bonding with them, but they are bonding with you. I've got you. I've got you. So to make this really valuable to many of the listeners is going to be, I think, they've got a senior stakeholder, a difficult business leader in their comms role. They're probably having to advise this person, get them to sign off on something, get their agreement to something. And this is a stressed out senior person who... I, the, the phrase I hear from my clients when they're trying to negotiate with senior people is they say he or she just doesn't get it. They just don't get it. From what you're saying, you should, we shouldn't be worried about them getting us. We need to spend more time getting them. In other words, understanding what's driving their animosity or the reason they don't want to sit down and listen or they don't want to agree. We've got to get more under the skin of what's driving their behavior. Yeah, and that's, that's the shortcut. 
I mean, it seems ridiculously indirect, but it is the accelerator. It is the shortcut. I mean, if you're saying to yourself, they just don't get it, Ronald Reagan had a phrase, if you're explaining, you're losing. <laughs> you're losing. You're losing them. You're losing a relationship. You're losing ground. You know, flip it around. And also demonstrating understanding, getting a that's right out of the other side. The crazy thing is it has a tremendous clarifying effect for you. The leveling that it does for you. I mean, it does more for you to get a that's right out of them than it does for them. And it does a lot for them. So there's kind of this virtuous circle as opposed to a downward spiral from the difference in the approaches. It's almost a reciprocal feeling that you're getting from that. So you both there's been a bridge that's built, I suppose, between you, I guess. There's a, there's a bridge that's built, and you're going to get clarity on solutions if you can articulate it from their point of view. You're going to find clarity. You're going to see outcomes that you didn't see before. And many people, again, if you're pitching, if you're saying, you know, they just don't get it, you're probably fixed on a goal. And if you're fixed on a goal, then by definition, you've got tunnel vision. You've got blind right. And, you know, you're missing better outcomes. Mm. I've heard you say, actually, that are you so fixed on what you want to achieve that you wouldn't actually settle for something better? Exactly. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. Yeah, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Yeah, exactly. So coming at things with a much more open mindset to actually say, I'm just going to survey the terrain here. Right. What do I have? Who do I have in front of me? Who are they? What's driving them? What What's their value set? I might uncover an even better deal just by doing that from the sound. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and, you know, I can explain to you intellectually why there's always a better deal. But until people have been willing to engage in a process and then discovered on a regular basis, if I just remain open, and mm. we can say intellectually, we can say, all right, yeah, so just be open to a better deal. Everybody's going to say, yeah, 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 okay, I, 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 of course I'm open. But then they get into a conversation with this approach and I go like, I don't know where it's going. I, you know, I, I don't know where it's going. I thought you were open. To be open by definition means you don't know where it's going. Yeah, so it yeah. takes some getting used to. How about those people, we do meet them in life, that just, I don't know if they're introverted or... For whatever reason, they just don't like to speak. You get monosyllabic answers. What's your approach in those kinds of situations where someone, whatever you try, they're just not being forthcoming? Well, one of two things. They're either not forth, they're not forthcoming in the moment. You know, that that that's an attribute of people that we refer to as analysts. Uh, you know, and there was a C, uh, CEO of a company we were given some training to one time, highly analytical dude. He said, never answer an email sooner than 36 hours. <laughs> so it's he's he's not responsive in the moment, you know. He's monosyllabic no. uh, when people are talking to him. Just you know, if you're patient, he'll talk. Now, our real dilemma in negotiations is when we ask a question, when we're seeking information, we prefer the information now rather than 36 hours. And Absolutely. so, you know, what we did in my company was we took some hostage negotiation skills. And we figured out how to get that guy or gal to talk to me now. 
you know, what's shutting them down? Their trust issues. Analysts like to think through 75 potential outcomes. So how do I get them talking now where they don't feel like they've got to commit? You know, simple little things instead of with an analytical person, never say I disagree. Say, let's compare information. Uh huh. Because they're always willing to compare things because by definition, you're not seeking to tie them down in the moment, you know? And so they go, uh, let's compare information. Go, oh, okay, sure. Because there's no commitment there. Or, or the other thing I get the biggest kick out about analysts is they love the word dispassionate. <laughs> How true is that? And so the crazy thing is they're very passionate about being dispassionate, <laughs> which if you think about it, it's schizophrenic. <laughs> Yeah, it's the, it's the old joke about atheists, you know, the people that really have got the religion. It's just a different religion. They just very passionately don't believe in God. But it's that feeling, isn't it? It's true, isn't it? They have a very strong belief in not believing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, unfortunately, we're not going to have time to go through every, every tactic. As I say, people have got to read your book because it's so brilliant. But I'd love to hear you talk about it. I've read about it, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about two things that appear to me to go together, which I think are very valuable tactics, and that's mirroring and labeling. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that just to give us a flavor of it? Yeah. Well, and we, when we're teaching it, we refer to this as a quick two because, um, you know, they're, they're the simplest, the most elegant, most applicable. Plus, uh, the reason why we, we, give a lot of people training in those is there are three types globally. The world breaks up in the thirds, fight, flight, make friends. Just for the sake of your listeners, you know, be willing to go on this hypothesis. Yeah, I got no shortage of data that backs us up. Fight, flight, make friends. And each one of those animals uh, are a little bit different. So in, in globally um, and literally globally, surveying people around the world, in excess of 10,000 people, we've given a test to called the TKI, Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument, that, that susses this out, if you will. Then after get, putting them in types, we say, what skills would you prefer someone use with you to make a great deal with you? What is most likely to trigger your collaborative mode to work with people in a trusting way? And all three types list mirrors and labels in their top three. So regardless of whether or not you want to buy into the hypothesis of the thirds, if they all like mirrors and labels, it's a good starting point as you begin to diagnose the situation. So that's why I'm, I'm glad you brought up mirrors and labels. Mirrors, repeating the last one to three-ish words of what someone has just said, not the body language mirror. Not the NLP mirror, if you will. And I don't even know about NLP. People keep saying like, you know, there's a lot of overlap with you and NLP. And I'll say, okay, cool. I'm, not, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> I've never studied NLP, but great communication. Yes, there's going to be overlap because it's about great human communication. So, you know, mirrors are great connectors. Um, repeating the last one to three-ish words, when you get really good at mirrors, you can do surgical strikes through the conversation. Doesn't have to be the last one to three ish words. One to three, it, certainly no less than one, no more than five from given selected moments in the conversation. The cool thing about mirrors is the high IQ and EQ people love them. And I can't explain why I'm not a high IQ guy. You know, my IQ and my age are pretty close. 
so, but I've noticed over and over that those that only want to mirror are like, you know, they're the Albert Einsteins of, they're just highly intelligent. But because you have a high IQ does not mean that you have a high IQ, emotional intelligence. And these are people that are in possession of both, which I find fascinating. I'm not completely sure I understand why. These last three words, I'm saying them with a slight upward inflection so that to to ask you to dig a little bit deeper to explain it to me. Would that that be how it would work? It's dealer's choice. Most of the time, it's the upward inflection occasionally it's downward each one of them has a different emotional impact you're sending a different message with your tone each time you know the the tone probably conveys five times the amount of data hitting the person's subconscious triggering their recognition triggering their instincts the power the subtlety is phenomenal most of the time, it is an upward inflection, but it doesn't have to be. And you can you can experiment with both. Experiment with mm, both. Mm. Experiment with both. I was tempted there to ask you to do your late night FM DJ voice, but I... <laughs> we'll maybe we'll get that before the end of the show. <laughs> I would never use the late night FM DJ voice on you. All of a sudden, I feel my shoulders drop, and I'm just in your in your power. And so, labeling labeling is just a verbal observation. It seems, it sounds, it looks. You seem, you sound, you look, you feel. You know, the the thing I get the biggest kick out about that is when somebody says, "Oh, yeah, I know that. That's nothing new." I get news for you: you don't know it, and it is nothing. You don't know what you're labeling because most of the time, people will label improperly. You know. It seems, it sounds, it looks, it feels. Actually, every word in that is selected for impact. You see me sound, you look, you feel. Each word is selected for impact. The the word it hits the brain differently than the word you does. I know how it hits. Seems, sounds, feels. That's a calibration of how you're trying to get in extension of how you pick up information a way for you to trigger contemplation in the other person's brain in an intentional way it's it's not manipulation and and i've had people walk up to me go yeah yeah i remember this uh i say look if if you could feel uh the answer here it looks like you can see where i want you to go and you would agree and then I just did, it seems it sounds, no, 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 you didn't. What you just did was try to hustle and con the other side and plant feelings of distrust in them. So there's all sorts of bad interpretations of this. But uh, the labels the labels are the way to get the analysts talking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's how we first discovered the immense power labels. We're at the point now where we actually, if we need information, we're coaching people to never ask a question. You know, we're taught if you, most people know they got to gather information and they're taught, well, ask good questions. No, 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 no. You're at the, you're playing at the low stakes table if you're asking questions. Your tactical application labels triggers unvarnished downloads of information. The questions never will. So, we, we're coaching, we coach people some of our training sessions, make a list of your questions, 
we're going to turn them into other tools, mostly labels, and we're going to show you how to get more information by moving from questions into labels. And you got to know what you're doing right. in order to pull that off. Right. But coming back to my senior stakeholder who doesn't want to talk to me, saying something like, it seems like now is a bad time to start having this conversation with you, or it seems like this is a conversation you really don't want to have, is better than saying, do you want to have this conversation? <laughs> oh, that's, that's brilliant stuff. I mean, that, that would be a perfect way to start that because when people are, when you get the feeling they don't want to be in a conversation with you, they know they're generating that. If you ignore that, the message they're picking up is you're there to ignore their communication, which is now triggers a downward. Why do I want to talk to somebody who's aware that I don't want to talk to them and you're pressing on? But to immediately say, it seems like you're not comfortable with this right now. He's going to trigger relief on the other side and going to return some feelings of control back to them. And they're actually much more likely to continue as a result. I am just wary of the fact, though, that at some point, often with clients, they'll say to me, I've tried this, I've tried that, but no one gets it. And after a while, I have to say, you might just well, I have this phrase that organizations get the communicators they deserve, but you might just need <laughs> you might just need to walk away. You, there might be another organization out there that deserves you more. When do you know that it's time to walk away? Actually, that's another thing we do. We help people diagnose that right up front. You know, there's, there's a saying uh, that we it's, uh, use a lot. It's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Ah. Uh. And we refer to this as proof of life. And we're looking for proof of life of the deal right up front. Because in point of fact, there's, there's some data out there that indicates that 20% of your opportunities are fake opportunities. Now, um, we think the number is much higher. As soon as we start preaching proof of life, people are finding the number to be as high as 80% of the opportunities being fake opportunities. Well, what does that mean? That means you're now focused on the 20% that are real. And in the time that you chased the deal that you never got, you could have closed two that you would have got. So the, the acceleration is phenomenal, which is very counterintuitive to start walking away from opportunities will mean you will make more deals. Point of fact, that's what happens when you realize that at least 20% of your opportunities are fake opportunities. What would happen in your effectiveness in your life if you got 20% of your time back? You don't actually increase any of the hours of the day. You don't have to work. You don't have to be Elon Musk and work 100 hours a week. You know, you go from the equivalent of you know, you're working 40 hours a week, you get 20% of that back in effectiveness, you're 20% more effective, same hours. And is it just a matter of asking people whether the deal is still on the table? Uh, you know, is this something you, if this is something you're really interested in, I mean, how would you get to ask that? What kind of question would you need to ask to find out whether this is a real deal or not? Well, um, let's take the phrase, vision drives decision. So, you can say to somebody, you know, how do you see this working out? Right. If they go dead silent, that means they have no vision for it working out. 
before meeting with you, which means this is a fake opportunity. But if you you can also say to them, you know, how, how do you see this working out? They're, they've had a vision for moving forward. They'll start to describe it. If you're not included, they'll initially describe it as you not being included. I, I got a guy a couple of years ago, I was living in LA at the time, wants to uh, wants me to tell him all about my life so that he can hire me as a consultant for a movie. Now, I think what he's trying to do is get all the information for free. So I give him a little taste just to get him started. And then I say, so, you know, we make a deal, you know, if, if when you find a consultant that, that you want for this, how's this going to move forward? And he begins to describe a very elaborate process of working with a consultant. And I realize that in his description, it's generic and it does not include me. He should have started out by saying like, well, if we made a deal, you know, here's what we would do. You know, we get together with your agent. You know, we do this with you. We, there'd be a lot. The description would have, and actually, so the guy realizes he's about a minute and a half into the conversation. And I know he realizes he's describing no involvement involving me. And he immediately, suddenly now I'm being included. <laughs> After about two minutes. It's too late. Yeah, it's too late. I'm going like, cool. I got all the information I needed. <laughs> Thank you. And so yes. he said, he said, so let's go back to talking about your experiences as a hostage negotiator. And I said, well, you know, as soon as we've made mutual commitments, I'm happy to do that. And he was like, well, you know, how can I advocate on your behalf if I don't know what you're going to give us? And I thought, you know, you, you, already, you already sold me down the river, pal. You already told me that you were kind of me. Yeah, I love that. How do you see this working? How do you see this coming to life? I, I love that question. So in this, the time we have left, the last 10 minutes, I've got some quick fire questions Ooh, we're in a lightning round this. okay <laughs> what would most surprise people about chris boss wow probably unless you knew my history based on my accent that i grew up in a small town in iowa you know i know to everybody who are not new yorkers i sound like i'm a new yorker right you know when i'm in iowa they go like you sound like you grew up in new york <laughs> when I'm in New York City, people are like, where are you from, Wyoming? <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that the Iowa accent comes back a little bit, though, once you're back, back there? Does it seep in a you bit? You know, what, what seeps in, I spent some time in Kansas City, which is really a southern city, and I had picked up the habit of lengthening my words. And when I am, a, because I'm auditory, my primary sense is my hearing then I am more susceptible to picking that back up if I'm around people who are from the South. You have a very listenable voice, I have to say. Um, when, <laughs> what do you wish you'd known when you first started out? You know, the advantage of just being a little nicer, for lack of a better term, the, the power of being likable. There's a real fine line between needing to be liked and being likable. And being likable is a tremendous advantage. I was always so focused on being respected that actually when I retired, lots of people went out of their way to say how much they respected me. Very few 
went out of their way to say that they liked me because I was so focused on respect. You know, you, you, can, you can be as assertive and be likable simultaneously. And I wish I would have known that when I was younger. I could still be as assertive and still be as respected. And being likable did not shortchange my assertion or my respect. Is that just experience and age, the realization that you can be both, do you think? Yeah. Or was there a blinding flash of, of, of realization? No, I, th I think it's experience. I mean, I think, and, and basically, I, I agree. Daniel Cor wrote a great book called The Talent Code, and he contends that everything is learned, which means everything is experience. How long does it take to sink in? <laughs> right. So here's a big one. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you could not fail? So we take failure off the table. What would you Run do? Run from president of the United States. Excellent. <laughs> I was really hoping you'd say something like that. I thought negotiate peace in the Middle East. I wasn't sure what you were going to say there, but that's a good one. I think you should do it. <laughs> so this is a question borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show. What message would you put on a billboard for millions to see? So it's a bit of a metaphorical billboard. It's a message that you can have for millions to see. What would you put on that billboard? The universe is on your side. Nice one. I like it. Finally, I believe you're quite a big U2 fan. Is this oh, true? No, I, I, in so many ways. The, the music and them as human beings. Okay, so your outro track to this episode, what's that going to be? What's your favorite U2 track and why? Uh, you know, I, I love Elevation. That's one of my favorite songs. I mean, there's, there's so much, uh, so, so many, of the, you know, it's a long list of songs. But uh, yeah, I love Elevation. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely amazing. I've loved every minute of can, it. Can uh, take a moment to tell people about uh, the newsletter? Yes, please. Do. Now, um, yes. the majority of the audience is where? There's about 55 countries wow. worldwide <laughs> that listen to the show. All right. So wherever you are in the world, if you subscribe to the newsletter, it's complimentary. So you'll get it at 8 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday morning, designed very specifically you got Monday behind you. By Tuesday, you're ready to get in the harness. It's concise. It doesn't matter that it's free. What matters is it's concise and it's actionable. So, you know, go to our website, blackswanltd.com. All spelled the way they sound. B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Upper right-hand corner is where you can click on to go to the blog. All the past articles for The Edge. The Edge is our blog slash newsletter. You can search them. You can also sign up there. The newsletter is a gateway to everything that we do. We've got a lot of free content on our website. You're going to get a long way with the book and the free stuff alone. We've got a lot of very specific, very um, high-speed training, if you will, which you will not be ready for if you haven't read the book. Take full advantage of everything free that we have. Uh, the book's not free, but it's, you know, wherever you are, it's affordable. Take it, the book and everything free that we have, you will begin to have an impact on your life. And then you really get ready to kick it up to the next level. So that subscribing to the newsletter is a gateway to all of that. And I'm absolute living proof that it works. So just before lockdown, I had to negotiate with a client over price. And I just put your book into practice. And I think the biggest thing that changed 
is my attitude going into the negotiation. Excellent. I was actually I was actually looking forward to it. Wow. So rather than dreading it, I was looking forward to it. So it works, guys. It absolutely works. We will put all these links also in the show notes as well. So there's no way that anyone can miss any of this. Chris, thank you so much. Katie, a pleasure. An absolute pleasure. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. To find out more about some of the books and the other resources that Chris and I mentioned, head over to our show notes at abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You'll find the show notes to this episode and all our previous episodes there. While you're on our site, you might like to sign up for our monthly internal comms newsletter. It's called I Saw This and thought of you. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. Now, if you did enjoy this episode, I'd be really grateful if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts, because I'm told that's the very best way of making the show more discoverable for other IC pros out there that might find it helpful. Now, we've got some great guests still coming up in this season, including Dr. Valerie Young, who's one of the leading experts in imposter syndrome, a subject that I've been discussing quite a lot since this pandemic hit. So you might want to hit the subscribe button today just for that conversation alone. All that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.